All right, let's open our Bibles to Psalm 123. Open your Bible or navigate on your device. See you later, buddy. Psalm 123. The topic, the psalmist compares believers to a servant carefully beholding his or her master's hand for subtle signals. The title of our message, I want to behold your hand. Now, every you'll be singing that all day. It'll remind you of the message. And every time you hear that song, you'll think of that and you'll think something spiritual instead of something Beatlemania, right? I want to behold your hand. I want to behold your hand. I can't help myself. Let's pray. Father, we, as the psalmist, we do want to behold you. And we pray that, Lord, uh, as you reveal your presence to us in this place, we would see your grace and your mercy at work in the world, but also in our lives and in the lives of those around us. You said the Holy Spirit would be our teacher. We need him, therefore, to open up the word to us. It's a spiritual word, not a secular one. Uh, there's nothing I can say that would add to it, of course. I could take away from it. Uh, we don't want any of that to happen. Pray, Lord, that there would be an anointing on hearts so that what is heard is exactly what needs to be heard in every life. We thank you and we praise you. We do it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Show me your hands. You're almost certain to hear that shouted at a suspect in any cop show. One of the first things I learned as a chaplain on a ride-along was to look at the hands, because that's where a person will be holding a weapon. Show me your hands might be followed by put your hands up and then put your hands behind your head. There's that famous scene where Butch and Sundance are trying to rob a bank in Bolivia, and uh, they don't speak Spanish, and so they've got it written down. And uh, Butch goes, manos arriba, and Sundance goes, their hands are already up. And then they finally give up on the Spanish and just rob the bank. When Quint first meets Hooper in Jaws, he demands, give me a hand. It's my best Irish accent. <laughs> then Quint grabs Hooper's wrists and looks at his hands and examines them. You got city boy hands, Hooper. You've been counting money all your life. Can you remember the last time you used hand signals while driving a car? <laughs> I don't know what that last one is. The military utilizes tactical hand signals. Most everyone understands that a bent elbow raised clenched fist means stop. But raise that clenched fist with a straight arm overhead with your head down and it communicates something very different. A good doctor observes your hands. There are many medical reasons your hands might shake. My handshake, is it from too much caffeine or too little dopamine? In Terminator 3, Arnold walks through a mini mart filling a basket with junk food. When the clerk asks him if he's going to pay for it, he ominously extends his hand and says what? Sure, talk to the hand. <laughs> Sounds just like Robert Shaw say, saying it. Now, hands are prominent in Psalm 123. The psalmist doesn't want to talk to the hand. He wants to behold the hand of the Lord. Look at verse 2. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their masters, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord, our God, until he has mercy on us. The psalmist wants to behold the Lord's hand the way a faithful servant beholds the master's hand in order to receive guidance and instruction. 
We are servants of the Lord, and so we too ought to passionately desire to behold his hand in the same way. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, behold the Lord's hand until he signals his mercy to you. And number two, behold the Lord's hand until you show his mercy through you. Verses one and two, we'll talk about God signaling us with his mercy. Now, my shaking hands, it's not from too much caffeine. You may not believe me, but I don't drink all that much coffee in a day. See, nobody believes me. I have one cup, a pour over in the morning, maybe eight ounces. So when you say cup, oh yeah, he's got one of those, like the guy in the commercial that drinks the whole pot. No, just have one cup of coffee in the morning. I might have a shot of espresso or a Turkish coffee mid-morning. You think, oh, well, that's crazy. But a shot is not some super shot of caffeine. A shot of espresso has about the same amount of caffeine as a cup of coffee. It's just a little concentrated kind of thing. So if you want to have six or seven shots of espresso, then maybe you're going to get uh, you know, wiped out. But it's not that much. And then I might have a mid-afternoon coffee, but not always. I'm, lately, I've been having either brewed iced coffee or I got this crazy gadget called the Frank DePaula. And uh, it, it is a combination immersion vacuum brewer. And it's the greatest thing in the world for cold or uh, hot coffee. I just can't get enough of it. It's so fun. And so I've been making that in the afternoon for my wife and I. I shake because I have too little dopamine, and that's from Parkinson's disease. So technically, and I quote, the main pathological characteristic of Parkinson's disease is cell death in the brain's basal ganglia. It confirms what you've always suspected. I'm brain dead. <laughs> My initial diagnosis was about two years ago. It's no secret. I just didn't want to make a huge deal about it. It has opened up a lot of new ministry. For example, this year at our annual Apples of Gold, they've asked me to demonstrate shake and bake cooking. <laughs> and I'm going to do a dessert with it, Jiffy Pop popcorn. Remember, remember, they don't make that anymore, do they? Do they make Jiffy Pop? They do? That's the greatest stuff in the world. The noise, first of all, there's the noise it makes on the grate. And then that big mushroom cloud comes up, right? I always wanted to blow up. I, I love Jiffy Pop. Honestly, I figured that one day it'd be an appropriate uh, message, or illustration in a study, and, and it fits the hand kind of thing today. And now we can have some fun with it as we go on. And so verse 1, a song of ascents, unto you I lift up my eyes, O you who dwell in the heavens. The songs of ascent, Psalm 120 through 134. They were the travel playlist for pilgrims on their way up to the hill to the temple in Jerusalem to celebrate one of the annual feasts. In the previous psalm, the pilgrim had said, Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Now that he's within the city, his gaze turns even higher to God's dwelling in the heavens. And so the psalmist looked heavenward, and then in verse 2, he's going to talk about the kind of humble servant he desires to become. Those two uh, thoughts coincide. Whenever you look to heaven as a believer, you should think about your humble service to the Lord. Seeing, uh, seeing God that way, he wanted to be rededicated to serving God. It can't help but remind us of Isaiah. He recorded his famous vision of God in chapter 6 of his prophecy. He said that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, 
Each one had six wings, with two covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In his vision, Isaiah was rededicated for service as a coal from the altar touched his lips. He uttered those famous words, Here am I, send me. Your serving is an outgrowth of your vision of Jesus. And, and I don't mean by that you're going to be transported to heaven like Isaiah was. Uh, you're not going to see Jesus face to face in that way. It's how you envision his nature and character. It's what you think about the Lord. If you're not serving the Lord, you're a Christian and you're not serving the Lord, or if your service seems empty and meaningless, or if it seems a burden, then you can't be looking at the suffering servant who substituted himself for you in order to save you. Because none of that would flow from Jesus Christ. Uh, there can't be anything that is uh, empty or a burden. And certainly you can't just not serve him. And so the answer isn't to sign up for more service or to get involved. The answer first is to see Jesus as he is in the scripture, as the servant. Uh, who has come to die for our sins and wash our feet and do all the things that he's done for us. And then you will be drawn into service that is a joy. Verse 2, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their masters, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy on us. The picture the psalmist refers us to is that of a servant who is so attentive to his master or to her mistress that they respond to subtle finger and hand signals that guests of the household may not even see. They don't ever have to be told what to do. I was thinking that you know, for years we could have had this here at Calvary. We could have had hand signals for the ushers. Ushers don't always know what to do. I know that because I was an usher once and I didn't always know what to do. And so you, sometimes there's a disturbance. And the thing is, is it, is it a big enough disturbance to cause a bigger disturbance? Or do you just let it go? You don't want to let it go too long because then the pastor will bellow at you from the pulpit and say, why aren't you dealing with that? Uh, and so I thought we could have hand signals. Of course, it'd be rough now because... <laughs> but I could, be, I could keep my hand like this. I used to be able to do it. And, and maybe if there was a disruption, I could just lift a finger. And that means deal with it. Or the whole hand, that means I'm out of here or something. You know, I don't know. But we could have hand signals or we could just borrow military hands. But I think it'd be weird to see your ushers going like this. We don't want to get too... We're not a paramilitary organization here. Anyway, I think you get the idea. Uh, I, I got the idea too, but I don't know where I am now. <laughs> if you've been a leader or a supervisor... Maybe you are currently. Have you had the joy of having a subordinate assistant that seemed to always know what you wanted done and how to accomplish it? Somebody who is really, truly helpful? Or are you always finding it necessary to assist your assistants? If you have to assist an assistant, you're in, well, it's the wrong assistant. <laughs> Iron Man had Jarvis and then Friday as his AI assistants. And by the way, AI was a problem in the Avengers universe as well. They could anticipate his needs. The psalmist wants to be that in tune with the Lord, that, that we, we look to him and we know exactly what to do. 
Christians tend to think of serving as if they were in an episode of Downton Abbey. Nobody wants to admit they've seen that. Good, I hate that show, but it's uh, I knew I'd get a rise out if I said that. Now all you secret Downton Abbey fans are mad. That's you know they're going to storm out, and I'm going to have to lift my whole hand. But everything is expected to be absolutely perfect. They labor and toil to a point of exhaustion. They're constantly anxious during the dinner. Inevitably something, a drinking glass is spotted or spilled to everyone's shame. It's the end of the British world for them. If you ever feel as though you're serving Jesus that way, something is wrong. You're either putting a burden on yourself that isn't there or someone is trying to put a burden on you. And I know serving sometimes feels that way. There's an anxiety to it. There's a nervousness to it. There's a, a fear to it. And none of that is from the Lord. And so if you find yourself in that, say, hey, wait, is this a burden I'm putting on myself or are you putting a burden on me? I always throw out giving as an example. Churches have many techniques to burden you about your financial giving. Isn't it better to let the Lord lead you in your giving? That's why we talk about giving actually a lot, but without putting a burden on anybody because that's between you and the Lord. He, you need to give as he leads you. New Testament giving is to be uh, regular, sacrificial, uh, and hysterical, the Apostle Paul says. And so you, you get with the Lord and you decide. As a side note, I think Christians can be afraid to let the Lord lead. What if he asked you to be extra generous or to do something you would never have dreamed of or don't want to do? That's always, it's sad to have that fear of the Lord. But somewhere along the line, we read the parable of the rich young ruler and we think, oh, what if the Lord came to me and told me to get rid of my wealth or to give something away? We used to own a piece of property. We thought we were going to build on it over on Fargo and Glacier. Uh, and then we, anyway, it's a long story. Most of you know the story, but at one point, when we were looking to sell that property because we moved over here, uh, I think we were trying to decide on a price. And one of our elders said, what if somebody, what if the Lord put it on our heart to give that to some struggling church? And we said, yeah, that would never happen. <laughs> no, we didn't say that out loud. <laughs> but things like that happen. And when you read about that either in the Bible or in a devotion, you think, oh, wow, what a Christian, what an experience. Would to God that you would do that to me. And you think, yeah, not so much. <laughs> and so it, it's not a rebuke. It's just when you ask the Lord to lead you, just be open to some really out-of-the-box suggestions that he might make. He leads you by his word, but it's reinforced by the still, small, gracious voice of the Holy Spirit who indwells you. And since, as we'll see in a moment, he uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and I mean this reverently, God's counsel will not always seem wise from a worldly point of view. It, it can sometimes seem foolish from a worldly point of view, especially when it comes to money. Because everybody thinks, oh, you have to have this and this and this all lined up. God would never ask me to do that. <laughs> he, he absolutely would, and it's to his glory and your benefit. There's another illustration in the Bible that captures the same idea of subtle servant signals. It's found in the Psalms, Psalm 32. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle. And so the picture is a rider on a horse, let's say, 
without a bit and bridle who just by the subtle turn of his head or the move of his body gets a response from his horse as opposed to one that has to be injured almost to get it to go where you want. The, the two are so in tune with one another and that's the way that this psalmist wants to be with the Lord in his service. Then verse two ends, so our, our eyes rather look to the Lord our God until he has mercy on us. Now mercy by definition cannot be earned or deserved. And secondly, God is always merciful even in his righteous wrath, he remembers mercy. And so this isn't saying that I'm just going to sit tight until I force God to be merciful to me. No, he's saying I'm going to hang on because I might not see the Lord's mercy right away. In fact, you might think there is no mercy in your particular situation. And so you need to wait on the Lord until you perceive his mercy. It's part of the fallen world that there is decay and disease and death. At some point, you're going to suffer. You need to wait and God will show you his mercy in it. At first, it doesn't seem merciful at all. It seems anything but merciful, but God wants to bring his mercy into focus. Let's take an extreme. Let's say God permits your death in a way we dislike or think premature. His mercy is shown in the fact that you're absent from your decaying body and present with Jesus. And so we sorrow, but not as those who have no hope. And so in an ultimate way, you can always see God's mercy in the life of a Christian because he's headed or she is headed for eternity, a blissful eternity in a new body with free will that is incapable of sinning in a mansion that Jesus is building for you. It's usually other more subtle mercies that God wants you to discover in your own personal life. And so the suggestion here is that like the servant, Passionately attend to your master's hand until that mercy comes into focus. I want to add an important element to this idea of beholding the Lord's hand. When the risen Lord appeared suddenly to the disciples, you remember what he said to Thomas. Reach your finger here and look at my hands. Look to that hand. Wait until the nail print comes into focus. Concentrate on the, what the Lord has done. The hand you are beholding for guidance is nail printed. The Lord knows you intimately. He loves you with an everlasting love. He promised to keep you until the end. He cannot help himself from showing you mercy regardless your circumstances if you're willing to see it. Now in verses three and four, we're gonna show his mercy to the world. Contempt is a word repeated twice in these two verses and as I'm fond of uh, you know, reminding you, repetition is there for emphasis. And so we want to know a little bit about contempt in these two verses. In verse 3, the psalmist has contempt for himself and indicates that all believers ought to hold themselves in contempt. And then in verse 4, he points out that non-believers hold believers in contempt. And so here's in verse 3, Have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us, for we are exceedingly filled with contempt. Now what does he mean by contempt? Obviously we need to deal with that. Definitions are useful, but they can't always communicate the psalmist's intent in a way an illustration can. If you've ever referred to Strong's Concordance, whether you're using an online Bible or, uh, you know, you're an old school book person, you know that sometimes you'll look up a Hebrew or a Greek word and it has like 20 different definitions. And they all kind of mean the same thing, but you can see how they would suggest different things based on their use. And so an illustration is always better. Now. Earlier, we were in heaven with Isaiah. Between his vision of the Lord and the coal touching his lips, he said, woe is me, for I am undone. 
I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so this is his contempt upon himself and upon other believers because he realizes his uh, distance from God. He's seen the glory of the Lord, the holiness of the Lord. And even as a believer, he knows he's undeserving and he needs God's mercy. Albert Barnes writes and he says, this expression evidently denotes that he was a sinner and especially that he was unworthy either to join in the praise of a God so holy or to deliver a message in his name. The vision, the profound worship of the seraphim, the attendant majesty and glory had deeply impressed him with a sense of the holiness of God and of his own unfitness, either to join in worship so holy or to deliver the message of so pure a God. Holding yourself in contempt is more than an awareness that although justified and declared righteous, you remain a sinner. It is deeply experiencing the truth of your being a sinner, but seeing through it to God's mercy in saving you and calling you into service. And so it's a genuine understanding of uh, how far the flesh is from the spirit and how much we still struggle and yet a rededication to serving the Lord. C.S. Lewis put it this way, a Christian is not a man who never goes wrong, but a man is enabled, uh, who is enabled to repent and pick himself up and begin over again after each stumble because the Christ life is inside him repairing him all the time. In his mercy is the incredible encouragement to serve the Lord. Stop and take that in. God partners with you. All of us should all the time have a kind of understanding that Isaiah had, that I'm a sinner and I'm not worthy, but not in a false humility, not to go around with our head down, to go around with our head up in boldness, knowing that God has had mercy upon us, has touched us from his altar, filled us with his spirit. So that's what contempt is all about here. Now the, believer, uh, the psalmist discusses how non-believers hold believers in contempt. Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorn of those who are at ease, with the contempt of the proud. Proud and at ease were the psalmist's words describing non-believers. They are, of course, there are rather, of course, many other words that could be used of them. Here's something to remember when you're being held in contempt. When, for being a Christian, you're being uh, held in contempt in the world. This is from the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, no homosexuals, no sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Not that we're happy about it. You should never be happy about a person not inheriting the kingdom of God who is not saved. But one of the first things Paul says is, the world holds you in contempt, but you're headed to glory. You suffer now the way Jesus did, but the crown is in your future. And so when you feel this weight of contempt coming upon you from other people, realize that one day you will rule and reign with Jesus and go on into a blessed eternity. But he also goes on and says this, very insightful, after he gives that list of sins, he says, such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And so we remember that uh, we held Christians in contempt. The, the guy who led me to faith in Christ at uh, the title company I worked for at the time, he and I were pretty good friends. 
We were both salesmen. We were pretty good friends. And then he got saved, and I did nothing but ridicule him publicly, openly, to everybody I could, uh, him and his wife both. Uh, but then God used him to lead me to Christ. And so uh, that's the thing I'm talking about. People will hold you in contempt, but such were some of you. And so you need to remember that and take it gently in the spirit. Non-believers hold you in contempt, or they should. They should think that you are weak and foolish for believing in Jesus. Your habits and lifestyle should cause them to scorn you. Certainly your values are vastly different from those of non-believers, aren't they? Are our values totally different from those of, of the non-believer? Uh, yeah, they should be. If they're not, something's wrong. The Apostle Paul characterizes believers as foolish, base, and despised, among other things. It's in this passage. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. I won't go through the whole thing, but you could kind of insert your name in there. For you see your calling, Gene, that you're not wise according to the flesh. You're not mighty. You're not noble. God chose you as one of the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. You're a weakling to put to shame the things which are mighty. You are base. You know, you get the idea that this is a dispensation. This is a time, the church era, in which Christians should be treated the way Christ was treated at some level, held in contempt. Is that how your non-believing friends see you? If not, consider this. It is possible for a believer to not want to be considered in these ways, to not be beheld in contempt. We avoid it by living like and looking like the world. And that's always a temptation because the, the world, the flesh, and the devil are against us. And the devil wants us to look like and live like the world around us. And, and because we don't like to be held in contempt, I don't like to be held in contempt, there's a tendency for us to try and, and look as much like the world as we can and say things that are as much like the world as we can so that no one will begin to scorn us and laugh at us and, and treat us in these ways. But it's inevitable if we're serving the Lord. We need to watch for his subtle signals uh, in social situations, if we ever get back to social situations, uh, so that we can be used by him. And one of the ways we're used by him is to be held in contempt. Uh, my story is just one of millions. Uh, you hold someone in contempt, and then the next thing you know, they're leading you to Christ. It's amazing. Psalm 123 seems like an odd choice for a psalm of ascent, but of course it's perfect for the playlist. The pilgrim has come to the very presence of God in his holy temple. He didn't travel there to be entertained. He traveled there to get a vision of God. Any vision like that is going to reveal you as a sinner who is to be rededicated to serve the hand of the Lord. So don't forget that second part that's important. You don't just see the Lord and say, woe is me. I'm terrible. I'm a sinner. You can't use me. You say, no, woe is me. Use me. Here am I. Send me. That's the whole process. Give me your hands, demanded Quint. If we could, in the sound studio, take away the gruffness and condescension of Quint, that would be a great quote to attribute to Jesus. Maybe this will be the book I write that, no, never mind. Think of Jesus with his everlasting love for you, asking you each day, Gene, give me your hands. 
so that our hands could, in a sense, be his hands. Doesn't he ask you that in a way? I mean, you spend time with the Lord. Doesn't, it, that's one way of putting how he asks. He says, Gene, give me your hands so that I might use them, so that they might be my hands on the earth. Believers will stand individually before the reward seat of Jesus. It is never an examination of works to see if you've done enough to be saved, because you're saved by grace through faith, not by works that anyone should boast. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. If you're to be saved, you need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, that Jesus Christ has come as God in the flesh, risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, to offer you the forgiveness of your sins and eternal life. And, and the, the Holy Spirit comes when the gospel is preached, and he uh, brings his grace upon the heart, and he frees the will of an individual who is a depraved sinner in order to choose Christ or to reject him. You might be that person here today that needs to make a decision for Jesus Christ because you've never been born again. You've never been filled with his spirit. Those of us that are Christians, the reward seat is an examination of your works so that the Lord can celebrate his work in and through you. The Bible says that there are works for us to discover in the Lord. We discover them, we perform them in the power of the Lord, by the leading of the Lord, and then he rewards us for what he did through us. These rewards will adorn us like a bride is adorned for her bridegroom on her wedding day. If the Lord at his reward seat were to say to you, give me your hands, what would he see? You don't want him to see city boy hands that have been counting money all your life. You don't want him to see you totally immersed in the material realm, trying to do the things of the world, look like the world, and live like the world. Your hand should be scarred and calloused and cut and bruised, for having responded to the subtle servant signals of Jesus because his hand was for you.